IntelliKey Leadership Stories, the podcast for conscious leaders. We share the lessons learned from global leaders making an impact for their organizations, stakeholders, and investors. For people, community, and environment, we get inspired by their experiences, attitudes, and practices. Here are your hosts for IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Welcome back, everyone, to our podcast, IntelliKey Leadership Stories. Kirsten, as we continue to think about building organizations, we also need to think about nonprofits in this category, too. You know, we always talk about making the money and growing the bottom line, but nonprofits have an important place here, too, don't they? They do. I, I agree with you. Nonprofits are the crux of serving individuals and humanity. So making sure that they're cared for and they have the resources and the right leaders in place makes a huge difference. Our guest today, we're going to pursue that direction. So glad to have Matthew Zachary on our program. Matt, welcome to the program. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Mark. And Kirsten. Well, Matt is the founder and strategic advisor of a nonprofit called Stupid Cancer. He's a maverick, a cancer survivor himself, and a cancer patient advocate. He has a media company also called Offscript Media. I, I love the double meaning there, Matt. It's off-script meaning prescription, but it's off-script meaning I don't, I'm not following anybody's script here. Oh, there's but, a person uh, after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> but Matt, let's talk about your own personal journey here and what led you to start this organization and become the advocate you are on your own brain cancer survivor journey. Yeah. I mean, it comes down to, we all wind up being stewards of our experience and no one asks to get sick. I was just this humble 21 year old trying to live his life and do his thing. And brain cancer just kind of showed up at my doorstep. Can't plan for that thing to happen. And at the time I was a musician, concert pianist, going to film school to write for Hollywood. That was my dream to be the next James Horner, John Williams, and I lost the ability to play. The initial symptoms were my left hand stopped working. That's bad when you're a pianist, it's bad in general. And I went misdiagnosed with this crazy comedy of errors, comedy of terrors, perhaps. And this was the 90s, just for framing it to the listeners, totally 90s. So all the things we may or may not take for granted today, which are better problems to have, they just did not even exist in the mind's eye of anything. So whatever I say may not be applicable to today's newly diagnosed patients or people having to navigate that store they never wanted to shop in. But I was also, um, I fixed computers. I'm a total geek nerd, you know, from the eighties, I fixed computers. I was hacking into Unix as a 12 year old. All the, I was the Matthew Broder. Let me ask, games. do you play D and D too? I mean, that goes uh, no, I never hand. got into D and D the dodecahedron dice are not my friends. <laughs> uh, I had other people that did that, but I was really, I, I learned basic and Fortran on the Commodore 64. That was mm. me. <laughs> <laughs> so I was that kid. So plan B became plan A after I was diagnosed. I went through my treatment. It was God awful horrible. I nearly died from the radiation itself. They got the tumor after surgery. And then they're like, oh, go to live your life. You're fine. You're done. <laughs> Get out of here. Like that's not how we treat people these days. But I kind of like wandered the earth like Cain for the 90s. I did not really have a 20s. I was 21 when I was diagnosed. I had all sorts of issues that are relatable today, but at a massively different scale of quality in terms of acute side effects and comorbidities, liquid diet, lost my hair, lost my fertility, lost my virility, lost 110 pounds, lost my friends, lost my career, couldn't play piano, all that fancy stuff. It sounds like I'm telling someone else's story at this point, 25 years later. 
But plan B became plan A. I wound up working in the agency world out of happenstance. And that kind of got me into this understanding about media, early media. Social media wasn't even a word yet. This was like Macromedia Flash PDF world for the listeners that remember the dark times of IT of the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And I learned about branding and brand planning, brand strategy. I learned Photoshop, Quartex Express, Illustrator. I just immersed myself to the creative world of consumer advertising. What derailed all that plan B was meeting my first peer. I had no idea that, that there were any other 20-somethings in, in this world that had gone through cancer. Everyone's like, oh, my grandfather died from cancer. Not helping, not helping. You know, my mother's uh, best friend's sister lost her child to cancer. Also not helping, and that's equally tragic. This idea of just not even knowing you're not alone was, was not a thing people thought about. But I met this guy named Craig, who I've been very public writing about on the internet, Craig Lustig, who deep end of the pool, peer support, bald, Jewish, brain cancer, uh, New York City, went to my university and was in my acapella group. Wow. <laughs> like, how did I like, not know you? You're like wow. looking in the mirror. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. Uh, what? We were one year apart, but we knew everyone. It was absolutely bizarre. But Craig had a master's in public health in Columbia and happened to be on the board of directors of one of the most influential legacy policy groups in the Beltway called the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. I struck gold. If there's one human I could have met to transform my entire life's trajectory, it was Craig Lustig. So I was immediately sucked into this world of, how'd you like to be a cancer advocate? And I said, what the hell's a cancer advocate? Mm -hmm. Those were not words. <laughs> well, not and words. You're, you're talking about the 90s. And so not only are the drugs different, the treatments are different, the doctors are different, but this, this network of survivor and support and advocacy right. has really blossomed over those years to what it is today, hasn't it? It was all like Rapscallion Margaret Mead people in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And I think Lance Armstrong Foundation and its heyday really did catalyze society and culture to inspire other Americans to take up the mantle and learn what it meant, because we could finally point to things that paid it forward. Before then, there really weren't anything except people doing all the right things they could, like die-ins at Genentech mm -hmm. and the March on Washington in 1998, like things, old school tactics of your first amendment rights were basically what the, the, the strategy was. And chapter one ends where I'm introduced to this entire behind the curtain wellspring of, you know, eager young rapscallion upstarts that are like, we demand better the next revolution in patient advocacy. And what does that mean? And I quit my career to, I, I took out a mortgage. <laughs> I did a HELOC. And I invested myself in just suppose I could start a nonprofit organization that was highly, um, I'm going to make up a word, non-derivative of everything that was existing out there, which at the time, if you want to do a real brand analysis, was dying people, uh, wristbands, cat posters, ribbons, pink M&Ms, and sob stories mm -hmm. uh, and, it, it, and body parts, lots and lots of body parts. And if you didn't have that body part, you couldn't swim in that side of the pool unless you were this body part and you go to that part of the pool. Very fragmented, very different. And I entered it with this, with this completely naive understanding of what the hell is going on here. But with that said, they were stunningly incredibly inspiring, smart, genius people, researchers, and 
uh, oncologists and and um, and patient advocates and nurses and doctors and other nonprofit leaders and navigators and but there was no cohesion. And that was like, that's the end of chapter one. I was like, did I just figure out what to do with the rest of my life 10 years after I was told I'd be dead? Yes. Hmm. I mean, talk about two forks in the roads, right? Mm -hmm. Plant B's, plant C's, plant D's coming to in front of you. I was very, very fortunate to have gone to the choose your own adventure books. Remember those books? I'm mean, <laughs> yeah, going absolutely. way 80s and 70s with that one. Yeah. But yes, and that's when I, I spent a while doing what agencies do. If you're going to build a brand, you have to research what the brand is, who's the market, stuff that most nonprofits would never do. And we can get into the psychology of why you why people start charities. And I really knew I was naive and that I'd probably make all the right mistakes that other groups make presumptions to do. And I approached it as if it were a brand, like I'm launching Pepsi for cancer, which is a bad analogy, but you kind of know what I mean. Yeah. And what I realized was that Cancer in the early 2000s was being largely fomented by younger boomers and Gen Xers, mostly people at the time in their mid to late 20s to late 40s. We're all, we've all aged gracefully over the last 20 years. But the territoriality was what bothered me the most. There was no egalitarian organization that united everyone under one umbrella except the American Cancer Society, and they can't get out of their own way. So, and I'll be brutally honest about that. So stupid cancer was just like the right amount of risk to take. And it was what Homer Simpson would say, if you got cancer, <laughs> you know, that's what he would say. And it was such a calling card from pop culture at the time. And it, it tested really, really well. And all it needed to do, because there was no mission, there was no bylaws, nothing. It was like me launching a website and getting the IRS has thankfully gotten harder to get C3s passed, but at the same time, you can just run that through back then. But it's interesting you say, you know, no big mission statement, no big, you know, but a mission nonetheless, you know, this cause, this approach. And then over time you say, well, look, we can really end isolation. We can build community. We can, but that wasn't like a plaque on the wall when you started. You said, we'll start and we'll develop all that stuff as we it's go. It's kind of like the Grand Canyon before the Colorado River plunged through it. <laughs> And I was the river, but you can't determine what course the river is going to go. You follow the river in. And it always brings me back to a, a, a wonderful Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs quote that I think he stole from someone else, which is that you never give people what they wanted. You have to deliver that which they never knew they needed. And what people didn't know they needed at the time was a non-threatening point of entry to the cancer store mm -hmm. that felt welcoming and not you have to fundraise for us. You have to run this race. You have to do this marathon. You have to buy this blender. You can only live in this house over here because those people have this different kit. You're different. You don't belong here. There was no universality from a, a brand that spoke to everyone. Gave you permission to be angry, not a pity party cat poster that you'll be okay. And that's where the river started to carve itself. And again, the naivete came in handy because I didn't even know, oh, what's a CPA? <laughs> what, what's an audit? You know, I knew how to build a website and I knew how to write copy and I knew how to design great brands. And everything sort of started to ensue from that point to what you said before is the community were like, can you do this? Can you do that? I'm like, sure, we can do that. Why not? <laughs> it's me in my bedroom with no one else. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of how chapter two got started. 
And at what point along the way did you say, okay, uh, enough of me in the second bedroom, you know, uh, <laughs> we, we got to make this a real organization, you know, and uh, your, your teammate, Andrew comes along and you say, we're going to, we're going to make this something. Yeah. I, I ran into Andrew about 10 years into stupid cancer. His son was going through a, um, a bone marrow transplant. And, but the, the value of stupid cancer by that point had become real social equity in this country. Uh, a couple of things happened actually within six months of launching in January of 07, which got this sort of hamster wheel going about how do I get out of my bedroom? And, you know, what is payroll? Like these little things we tend to forget about. And the first one was that uh, one of my mentors, uh, Selma Schimmel, she passed away, amazing human being, was offered the opportunity to host an online talk radio show when those four words didn't exist in the ether. You know, what is, what is Howard Stern on the internet for, for cancer? And she said, I'm not doing this. I'm too old for this. You do this. I was like, okay. I, I, I've listened to NPR a little bit. I have no idea what this means. <laughs> I bought all this crazy equipment and whatever it was in 2007. And we, I launched the live, live, like not like, you know, podcasts are on your terms live. You missed it. You're screwed. Sorry. And the stupid cancer show became like this flagship media juggernaut because it was the first before podcasting and within two weeks i booked a year's worth of guests i came up with an entire run of show i wrote dennis miller type rants at the top of every episode it was highly programmatized very well produced and because it was live and this was before all the crazy noise of today's you know information overload people gathered around to listen to the show live in a chat room and after three years, it became a podcast. After 13 years and four and a half million people listening to it, it remains, and I stepped down, it's gone now, but it remains uh, almost like a Harvard business study in organizing, activating, and motivating millions of people. But that was the galvanizing catalyst for stupid cancer. And the second one was resultant of the show, which is Time Magazine anointed us a top 50 website for 2007, which was seen by 40 million people. And I got no money. I got no board. <laughs> I'm in my house. Those things really did set the river carbon itself. And just listening, which a lot of people just have lost the art of listening. I mean, it's a podcast. We hope your listeners right. are listening, <laughs> but there's an art to listening. There is an art to, you know, it's interesting as you're talking you know, one of my mentors always speaks to this notion that vision pulls us. Vision, we can have ideas, but that's not necessarily a vision. And it, it sounds as if you have been pulled into outcomes and into your higher purpose without necessarily even having to pursue it, but you allowed it to occur. And you said yes, when it showed up and you've been pulled ever since you know, with all of the accolades you spoke to from a personal level, what would you say is the most impactful on a personal level for you? Like what, what's the impact that you believe you've made with all of the people and successes you have made, right? Because going back to that young man who was diagnosed with cancer, not everybody is capable of just picking up the next day and saying, okay, we're going to go right? We're going to, we're going to pull people really have a lot of feelings around it. 
So what, what's your largest impact? So I'll tell a quick story about my dad. My dad was a high school teacher for 40 years. He taught industrial arts back when that mattered in society. Everything that wasn't social studies, math, science, English, or language, he taught. And he oversaw a department of 30 teachers, auto shop, culinary, metallurgy, woodworking, graphic design, um, business studies, typing. He did all of that, music and art. And once I hit my 20s or my 30s, no matter where we went, this was largely in New York City, but he was on Staten Island. We would run into people, grown men, grown women, who said, Mr. G? That was my dad's, he was a Mr. G. Hey, they call Mark G too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and <Just saying. laughs> my dad would pause and say, Peter? Yeah, it's me, Peter. I can't believe I'm seeing you. You changed my life. If I hadn't gone through this class in 1974 and you were my, I, I would not have be them. I would not be around today. You, Mr. G changed my life. And, you know, once is incredible. 150 times is a miracle. That's my impact is I'm now my dad. Hmm. People are people I haven't spoken to in years, people who may have attended one event once find me or run into me or, or they become CEOs of companies or then they're venture, venture capitalists or whatever they are. Just like last week, I was talking to somebody high up at a company and she's like, you don't remember me, but I attended the very first stupid cancer happy hour in Philadelphia in September of 07 and you spoke there and I met you and my life changed. If I hadn't gone to that, if you hadn't started stupid cancer, I don't know where I'd be in my life today. My doctor may have cured me, but you got my life back together. And, and how do you respond to that? But that is the footprint I'm most proud of, that there is a boat wake of potentially tens of thousands of human beings in this world who have benefited from the ripple effect of, of the stupid cancer magic. And it wasn't just built by me. It, it was built by all of us. It became something bigger than itself. And it still is something bigger than itself and will always be something bigger than itself. Mm -hmm. So Matt, uh, a listener who may be hearing this at the end of the first quarter of 2022, thinking about you know, the impact they want to make in the new year, it's beyond resolutions for them now. They had the burn you're talking about you know, in the mid 2000s. It's like, I really want to make a difference. What insights from your experience would you have for a person like this saying, I, I really want to make a bigger boat wave? I had a very intriguing conversation about this very issue a couple of days ago with a friend of mine. And I feel, you know, opinions are my own, that society is in a very parallel place to where it was in the early 2000s where we've grown accustomed to what we think need to be. And it's time to start thinking differently about everything we've come to believe is what we have to do. And the next decade of social impact and entrepreneurship and nonprofits are not going to be successful if they're dependent on donor dollars, if they're dependent on Twitter likes, if they're dependent on original content, and if they're dependent on being a shitty brand. 
And this is not a not a jab at the human beings who start charities out of pure emotional impulse because bad things happen to good people and you want to make a dent in the world. Mm-hmm. But I'll channel my friend Dan Pallotta. You may know Dan Pallotta if you don't. Listeners, Google Dan Pallotta, P-A-L-L-O-T-T-A. He's the sort of the godfather of nonprofit dogma in this country. He has the most watched TED Talk ever called The Way We Think About Charity is All Wrong. And he was right back then, and he's still right almost 18 years later. Uh, Has three books, Uncharitable Charity Case and Charity Board. I encourage anyone in the nonprofit space, founders, volunteers, donors, board members, just regular consumers that have an appetite to really appreciate something they never saw coming. And I've lived by Dan's dogma all these years. What I'm trying to say is that we're still living the old school ways of charity. It's tithing, it's penance, it's philanthropy because it's underpaying people. It's unless you're the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or started from the Ford Foundation, the nonprofit business model is fatally flawed and it's getting more and more fatally flawed every day. And reimagining what that business model is, is going to be absolutely critical to what impact means. Because the more and more charities that are nothing but funnels to one doctor or funnels to one system or funnels to this, there's a, a GPD you know, um, issue here. You know, I'm sorry, a, a GDP issue at hand here on how the nonprofit model is ruining GDP and the dependency on the American consumer against an economy that's so whimsical against, you know, can you give me a dollar? Can you buy a red nose today? Mm-hmm. It's never been sustainable and it's completely shaking apart like the sky looks like it's doing in the Spider-Man, you know, Dr. Strange <laughs> movie trailer. Oh. You know, it's, I love it. I was just, it's fascinating. I, um, in the middle of my concussion, I went for a walk with my daughter who took me out for a few moments and, you know, I really love helping people. I do. They, I've, I've been that way since I've been a kid and I still do. And she said, mom, have you ever thought about working with nonprofits? And I, I had, I said, I can't, I, I fundamentally, I fundamentally can't do it. I come from a business world and it makes no sense. However, you just put eloquent words to my limited understanding of the nonprofit world. I guess my question to you is because I fundamentally believe that, right? We have to elevate where we're going. We have to innovate where we're going. What do you, for those who are really guided to do good in the world, and historically you try to do that through nonprofit, right? Leadership and nonprofit. What do you suggest to them? You know, where do they start looking? And I love that you gave, I, I'm personally going to read his, uh, his material. I'm very excited about this conversation because it does have to change. What, what I found is in the early days, in the 2000s, maybe even in the 1990s, based on some of my speaking to people who had nonprofits in the 1990s, there's always been this public perception of charity equals paucity and that to do well is to make all the money you want, but to do good is to lose out mm-hmm. on success. And again, I, I just go back to Dan's, Dan is a disciple and a preacher to all of this. And to understand how he was just so ahead of his time as the, as the Nostradamus of this, the idea that you should um, 
you should not be able to do well doing good in this country as a C3. I think that stigma has changed a little bit because I, I see a couple of really innovative, and I hate that word, private sector companies filling in the gaps of trust and value that a nonprofit brings to the conversation in a way where consumers are so much more savvy to our data getting stolen, our privacy rights. We're willing to take different risks in associating ourselves with what we find value for versus thinking we have to have a nonprofit for trust. And one or two good examples of this, and I have no no equity or no, no value in these things is, is Talkspace, BetterHelp, The Mighty are really solid. Again, I no stake, full disclosures, that these are very successful private sector ventures that have created this sense of genuine trust and value to consumers where they might as well have been nonprofits 15 years ago. Mm. So it's a very interesting anthropology about American consumer sentiment and trust on brands and brand experience because we're we're more woke. I'm too old to get away with saying that word. We're more aware of where our data is getting sold, who we're giving our information to, how we get marketed towards, where there, there's, there's much less naivete in knowing what you're buying. Mm-hmm. And when For it's sure. free, you're the product, but we're okay with that in many circumstances. And, and the value of the pure, unadulterated trust you're supposed to get from a charity is being supplanted with really smart consumer health brands. First of all, Matt, what a terrific conversation. We're just so happy to have you on our program today. Kirsten, I think we've been hearing this notion that Matt's talking about, about doing well and doing good from a like an ESG standpoint on Wall Street. But I, I really appreciate the gauntlet that Matt is throwing down here that says nonprofit doesn't have to be the same model, the same. I love the, the paucity you know, uh, word that you used. It's like our traditional thinking about nonprofits needs to be shaken up a little bit. Yeah. You know, I love when traditional thinking is shaken up, right? Yeah. I, I really advocate revolutionizing where we've been. New things have to happen for new outcomes. Yeah. Well, Matt, I think you fit the, uh, the mold here that we've been looking for on this show. And that is, you know, leaders don't have to follow the same old playbook. They can write their own playbook and rebel a little bit. Could be leadership as well. It really is make no assumptions. Let the river cover itself listening to what prospective consumers are wanting, trying to sherpa yourself through the, um, what is it they don't know they need? And try to focus on doing one thing better than everyone else. There's too much spaghetti at the wall that everyone thinks they have. This is the Gary Vaynerchuk dogma. Like mm-hmm. you have to do everything, otherwise you will fail. That's no, right. no, no, do not, <laughs> do not listen to that. I love Gary, but that's, that's not how it works anymore. Yeah. You know? Well, Matt, tell us uh, I think how, going uh, back to simplicity yeah. is, is what's the most important thing. Uh, good call to action there. Tell our listeners how they can connect with you and follow your work that you're doing, because we're all going to want to know more about it. Um, I, I For now, I live on Twitter until God knows what's going to happen to Twitter that Jack's gone. So I'm just at Matthew Zachary on Twitter. But my show is called Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary. It's the number one podcast in healthcare. You have a million listens a month. It's very humbling. It's a natural extension of the stupid cancer show that I hosted. Like, oh, I, it's a privilege to be able to communicate with, with so many people and, and share these stories and inspire and profile organizations. My new venture is called Offscript Health. It's just Offscript, no T. Well done with the pun you understood <laughs> at the top of the show. Offscript.com. We are the first patient engagement organization focused on the value of audio to transform health outcomes. And it, it's a fascinating blending 
of my my eighth life that I'm in at this point and my 17th career. Yes. Well, and we're all reinventing it all the time. So we can follow your example, Matt. Well, thanks again for being on the show. And Kirsten, thanks for a great dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. And let's close with this. Stewards of our own experience. That was my favorite line of the interview. Well, we'll put all this information, the contacts, the references Matt made to other programs and TED Talks. We'll put all those in the show notes so listeners, you'll have a quick reference and an easy link to them. So Matthew Zachary has been our guest, founder of Offscript Media, host of Out of Patience podcast. Thanks again, Matt. This has been a pleasure, Mark. And And Kirsten, not Kirsten. And and Kirsten, (laughs) underscore. That's right. Listeners, come back again next time. We'll continue our conversation with conscious leaders all over the world about how they're doing well and doing good and about how they're helping their own organizations, profit and nonprofit, reach their full potential, their human purpose, their soul's purpose. And that's what IntelliKey really means. So for Kirsten Gouldie, I'm Mark Stenson for IntelliKey Leadership Stories. Take care. Thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories with Kirsten Gouldie and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn and visit our website, pureintelliKey.com. I'm Jared Kajak. Join us again for our next episode of IntelliKey Leadership Stories. This podcast is produced by BSB Media. We also host two other podcasts you might enjoy, Unlocking Your World of Creativity and Five Minutes of Peace. Subscribe today and leave a review on your favorite podcast player.